Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. If you do have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. A very simple text, and Blake here has a couple of copies, uh, and Graham has some copies of Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, or you didn't bring a Bible today, we invite you to borrow one. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, we invite you to, you can just take that Bible home with you. It's just a gift uh, for you. If you do have a Bible, you, we actually, you can leave it at the table on the way out. But if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you uh, that as a gift. Genesis 1.1, obviously very um, um, popular verse from the Scripture. The beginning of the Scripture uh, says these things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in 2011, uh, I took the church that I was pastoring at the time, First Baptist Church of Covington, on a trip to Israel. And it was an amazing trip, and uh, as Israel always is, it's a stimulating trip, and it stimulates so much of just your, your heart and your mind. Uh, and Paige went on the trip. It was Paige's first time to go to Israel. And of course, you know, the whole trip, you're learning history, you're learning about scripture, it's spiritually stimulating, there's so much to learn about geopolitics, uh, you learn so much about yourself on the trip, it's just a stimulating trip in every kind of way, you learn so much on the trip. And so at the end of the trip, I remember Paige came to me and she said, I feel like I understand everything now. I was like, well, that's a pretty good trip, right, you know? Well, I, I like that idea, understanding everything. What does it mean to really understand things? So uh, over the past, over the next rather five weeks, we're going to be in this sermon series, which is really a sermon series on biblical theology. What, what is the story of Scripture, and how does the whole Bible fit together? One of the things that, that Christians believe is that the Bible is not just a, a collection of old books or old letters that were written by people. We do believe it is that. We believe that, that human beings wrote these books, these letters that were collected to become the Scripture, but we believe that the Bible is more than that. We believe that as those people were writing, that God in His providence uh, was, was carrying forth that act, that He, through their writing, was actually speaking to us, that he, through these books, was designing this grand story, this, this grand narrative, this, this, this wonderful uh, way of salvation, his instruction to us. God was speaking to his own people. And that's an amazing thing to believe. We call this, theologians call this, the inspiration of Scripture, that God inspired these events to happen, that, that it doesn't discount the fact that the, the biblical authors would have had education and experience, that they would have maybe done research, that they uh, would have heard verbal stories that had been told before. It doesn't discount any of that. It's just saying that all of that was the design of God that by His inspiration, when they came to write the books that they wrote, it was the very words that He wanted to say for the good of the people that He wanted to love. That's what we believe that the Scripture is. And so it's very important to understand that. And, and I think a lot of people, and certainly a lot of Christians, don't know a lot about this Bible and how it all fits together and how it, how it all is one cohesive and beautiful and wonderful story. You know, at the breakfast table, we have a little catechism. A catechism is kind of a question and answer way to teach theology to your kids. This, Christians have been doing this for a long time, but we do this at our uh, breakfast table uh, there at the D's house, and one of the questions that we're working on 
is what is the Bible about? And the answer is the Bible is both God's instruction to mankind and the story of his salvation of mankind. And so for the next five weeks, we're kind of going to be doing this. We're going to be asking the question, what is the Bible all about? We're going to be looking at the whole Bible, this grand narrative that's both the instruction of God and the story of God's salvation. Again, the Bible is not isolated stories that have nothing to do with one another. No, this is one grand story. And it's an amazing story that all fits together. And when you really understand how it fits together, and really, you really understand what God is saying through it, I believe that you are on the pathway to understanding everything. And to understanding everything rightly. At least understanding everything through the right lens. One of the things we're going to be talking about through this series is what we call a biblical worldview. If you're, the term worldview is kind of new to you, uh, it's this idea that everyone is viewing the world, everyone is framing the world that we live in through a certain lens. Everyone has a worldview lens. Everyone is looking at the world through some sort of framework. And this is really on display right now in our country. You look at our country today, it's so divided, right? It's, people are so passionate about this opinion that is so contrary to this opinion. You know, how is this happening? How are so many people convinced that they are right? And when you're looking at things through a certain worldview lens, it's very hard to understand how anyone could see things through a different worldview lens. How could they? You hear a lot of this word, talk right now. How could they make that decision? How could they think that is good? How could they do that? They have no concept of how the other person is making the decisions that they're making. Well, this is called a collision of worldviews, right? People are looking through different lenses. And, and, and by looking through different lenses, that's a good analogy, they're seeing a different scene. They're seeing things in different color. They're, thing, they're seeing things in a different light. Well, the goal of Christ for you as a Christian is to see things how he sees things. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not just to have a casual relationship with Christ. It's not just to, to hold on to Jesus kind of distantly as your Savior. No, it's, it's to actually begin to see the world through his lens, through what we call a biblical worldview lens. And you, and you have to understand what Christ has communicated to us through his scriptures, in order to, as he prays for us in John 17, to be one with him and to see the world as he sees it. Uh, or in, in Romans 11, as Paul says, to know the will of God, to know and practice and exercise what is the will of God. If you're in Christ, or if you're exploring Christianity, ultimately this is God's goal for you. That you would understand the world as God understands the world. Now, I have said this before, uh, our very foundational thought in life is wrong. And that is a wonderful thing to realize. I hope, if anything today, you'll get that. The, the first thought that you have in life is an incorrect one. And, the, and what, what, that, what I'm saying there is that you're, the first thing that you are aware of is your own consciousness, right? The first thing that you're aware of is your own consciousness. In fact, famously, there was a philosopher named Rene Descartes, and he kind of thought about this. He, he wanted to get down to the foundation of all knowledge. And so he said, you know, how do I know? How can I trust anything? What can I trust in this world? How do I know that I'm not just a brain in a vat somewhere with tubes feeding it that's stimulating that? 
How do I know this is not just a dream? How do I know that this is real? And what Descartes came up with is, well, I don't know. But he said, but there's one thing I do know. I know that I exist. And he has this famous quote, I think, therefore, I am. What, right? So you're, you're most primarily aware of your own consciousness. And because of that, you begin to believe that primarily the whole world is about you. And the whole world is about your story and your happiness. Now, obviously, I know that if you think about that, if you spend some time kind of constructively thinking about that, you know that that's not really true. You know that you're not really the most important in the person in the world. You know that all of the universe doesn't really center around you. But we behave that way. We think that way. And certainly the world markets that idea to us, right? Not only, is it, not only is it the first thought we have, now the world is marketing that thought right back to you. You know, this is a dated analogy, but, you know, it's been said we live in the iPod generation. I know they don't make iPods anymore. But we live in the iPod generation, and it's a good analogy. It, you know, in, in the olden days, if you wanted to listen to music, you had to go to town on Saturday night where a band was playing, right? And that was your access to, to listen to music. And then, of course, a radio came out, or or a, you know, a record player, and you could listen to music in your own home, but everybody in the home basically had to listen to the same music, or you had to listen to whatever the station decided you could listen to. But now, it's not like that. It's the iPod, or with streaming music, you can listen to whatever you want to, whenever you want to, because you're in control, because it's your world. This is what the world is marketing to us. You're the city. You should be able to decide these things. You do you. You be you. And of course, we don't want to limit these choices just to music. You choose your own career. You choose your own style. And of course, on and on and on. Today, you know, it's becoming you choose your own identity, even gender identity. Something as natural as gender has become a free choice in the world. This is from a recent USA Today article. Far more U.S. teens than previously thought are transgender or identifying themselves using other non-traditional gender terms, with many rejecting the idea of girl or boy as the only option. So it's not that people are necessarily identifying themselves as transgender, they just don't want to be limited by girl or boy, as new research suggests. Now why is this? Now of course I'm certainly not denying that there are, is real gender confusion, deep psychological pain that exists, and I hope that our posture as Christians, as people, as certainly as a church, would always be one of compassion and humility toward other people. would never be noted by arrogance or self-righteousness. But, but let's ask the question, you know, why is this USA Today article true? Why are far more teens than previously thought not identifying with one sort of gender? Well, it's clearly marketing, <laughs> It's what's this story that I'm talking about. It's, it's you do you, you be you. you. You identify yourself. You write your own story. This is what is the story of the humanistic world. You are the center of the universe. You don't need to be assigned anything. You can be who you want to be. And if your starting place is your own consciousness, it makes a lot of sense. In fact, if your starting place is your own Consciousness, well, a lot of things that we're seeing right now makes a lot of sense. You know, fake news, that's big. Corruption in politics, people grabbing for power. 
Well, why not? If your starting place is your own consciousness, then what matters except for how much control and how much power you can get for yourself? If you're beginning from your own consciousness, then the goal of life is is achieve what you want. Be who you can do. Write the best story that you can for yourself. And this is why, hear this, this is why the biblical worldview, especially in this kind of secular culture that we live in today, this is why the biblical worldview is so different. This is why there was an author uh, and pastor one time, Douglas Wilson, who said that the most offensive verse in the entire Bible is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if the Bible is true, if this is true, then of course it's the most offensive verse in the whole Bible. This recenters everything. In fact, if the Bible is true, then this is a violent verse. It is a violent verse that rips the control of your life away from you and puts it in the hands of God. But of course, it's not a violent verse because you never had the control of your own life anyway. You just thought you did. Your conscience or marketing just told you that you did. Who has control of the universe? Well, it's obviously one who has control of the universe. It's obviously the one who ordered the universe. It's obviously the one who created the universe. But just so you know, just so you don't feel bad about being a 21st century person, this dilemma... This struggle with God for order and control has been going on from the beginning of time. In fact, the oldest book that scholars believe was written, the oldest uh, biblical book that scholars believe was written, not in terms of the events it's describing, but just in terms of when the actual book was composed, is the book of Job. We all know the book of Job. And the climax of the whole book is a struggle between God and Job for who is the center of the universe. God is reminding Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you at the beginning of all things? Job, you weren't there because God is the only one who is in the beginning. You believe this. Very hard to build a biblical worldview lens if you don't start here. And if you don't believe this. And so if you do believe this, you do believe that in the beginning, before anything else was, independent of everything else, God created the heavens and the earth, then we can begin to build a framework, to build a lens through which we can understand everything. So for the rest of our time today, what I want to do is just help us look at this a little bit. What does this mean? What does it mean that God is in the beginning? And I just want to look at four things with you that that God is at the beginning of. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And and so understanding this, it means that God is at the beginning ontologically. Ontologically. Ontology is just the study of being. Why and how does something exist? And of course, the foundation of your being and my being and the being of everything that is exists because God exists. He is the foundation. He is at the beginning ontologically. The, the Christian worldview it, it says this. In fact, the Bible, it's hard to even describe in the beginning God. It's not saying that the, at the beginning of the story God came about. No, it's saying at the beginning of the universe, at the beginning of the world that you know, God was already there. God was at the foundation of this. 
and how this universe came about or when it came about. A lot of Christians like to argue, but the important thing here is that it is the design and the order of God that God spoke the world into existence. In other words, hear this, God created everything that is, that, that is known. He created it with intentionality. He created you with intentionality. Nothing in this world is an accident. Your being is the design of God. A secular worldview, a secular worldview cannot say this. The secular worldview is forced to say that your existence, that your purpose is only an accident. In a strictly material world, all meaning is synthetic. All morals are made up. In a purely Darwinistic and secular world, all of life is, is, is material. And there are no ethics, there are no morals, there's no purpose. It's all chance collision of particles. Now, smart atheists will be able to tell you how morals developed, but ultimately they'll have to admit, they'll have to admit that they're only pragmatic. They only existed for the good or for the propagation of material things. They're, they are not intrinsically good or bad. A strictly secular worldview has to say, has to admit that there is no purpose, there is no meaning, there is no right, there is no wrong. And the truth is, is that in your hearts, every one of you rejects that idea because you know that there's right, you know that there's good, you know that there's meaning, you know that there's purpose. Because why? Because in the beginning, there wasn't just material. No, in the beginning, there was God. And, and from him overflowed all that is. He designed with order. He designed with good in mind. Now, of course, as Christians, we believe that the world is broken. We're going to talk about more of that, about that next week. But originally, there was a design because there is a designer. And God has a design for all things. He has a design for government. He has a design for the church. He has a design for marriage. He has a design for parents. He has a design for personhood. He has a design for gender. He has a design for morals. God is at the beginning ontologically. And the nature of your being comes from him. Everything comes from him. One of the things that Christians believe is that God created the whole world ex nihilo. That's a word we use. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, from nothing. That nothing pre-existed God. God pre-exists everything and everything is dependent on him. So in light of this, the second thing that I want to look at is at the beginning. God is at the beginning chronologically. Nothing came before him. Nothing will come after him. He created time. Think about that. The way that we understand the world in some sort of a chronology, in some sort of time, that one event happens after the other, that's all the creation of God. God exists before time. God exists outside of time. He is not controlled by time. He is the beginning and the end. He never began. Again, as I said, the, the Bible it has struggle, struggles even to describe what this means. God was there. He is always there. There is no timeline for God. There is no beginning. Now, this is what's fascinating about the Scripture and the story that the Scripture tells us. In the beginning, God was there and created, poured forth this creation. And the amazing thing about this time of year that we celebrate, Christmas, is that God, the one who is above all creation, entered into creation, subjected himself to his own creation because of his love for us in order to redeem us. And you know what happens at the end of all things? Of course, Jesus came, subjected, subjected himself to this creation. And of course, he didn't stay here. He ascended. He ascended out of this realm, out of this age. But you know what happens at the end of all things? 
Jesus will come back. He will usher in a new heavens, new earth. And then Revelation tells us this. Look, look at this with me. This is Revelation 21, 3 and 4. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be to them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's interesting that the Bible doesn't say that the dwelling place of man will be with God, but rather the dwelling place of God will be with man forever. And ultimately, God will enter into his own creation and be known and loved and with his own creatures, his own children, forever and forever. It's mystifying that God is the ultimate beginning and He is also the ultimate end. There is nothing before Him and there is nothing beyond Him. He's the beginning ontologically. He's at the beginning chronologically. He's at the beginning cosmologically. Everything is dependent on Him. Everything in the entire universe, every material thing, every immaterial thing, these are all reflections of God and all intended to bring God glory. You ever get proud of your work? And you ever look at what you've done and you say, yeah, that was good. I'm glad I did that. Of course you do. That's what you do. Right? You accomplish something. Like, that's good. Some of y'all just even have hobbies that you can be proud of. Like, some of you guys, y'all can work, y'all can fix cars. You know, how, how manly do you feel when you have just fixed your own car and it cranks up and it does what it's supposed to do? It brings you glory, right? Some of you guys have a good golf game, right? It's just a hobby. But you're good. You've mastered this game. Why does that, why does that make you feel good? Why does that... It's because you, you're pouring yourself into something. You're, you're displaying... There's, some, there's something of you in that golf game. There's something of you in that business that you built. There's something of you in that car that you fixed, right? When we create things, there, there's, there's, there's a pouring out of ourselves and, and a and an expression of ourselves. And this is right and good. When, when, when what you create does what it's supposed to do, it makes you feel good. It brings you glory. Now, when what you create doesn't do what it's supposed to do, it brings you no glory, right? I envision my golf shot to do one thing. What it actually does brings me no glory, right? But when what you, what you do does what it's designed to do, does what you envision it to do, there's a, something that's so satisfying, something so glorifying in that. Well, and what you're understanding in that is that God's impulse for creation. This is why God created the whole world. He's expressing himself. He's displaying himself. He's putting himself in to creation. He's, he's showing things. He's showing us in the things that he has made, his essence, his goodness, his kindness, his power, uh, his glory. And so in everything that we see, there is this right reflection, this right display of God. And if you're wise, there's, there's, there's an inclination even in you to, to recognize that. It, it's why we just had the day we just had. Why did we have the day of Thanksgiving? Because you know deep down, you know, Thanksgiving, we talk about Thanksgiving, it, 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 it doesn't just feel enough to be, to say, well, I'm grateful for the people around me. I'm grateful for my job. I'm grateful for... The, well, of course you're grateful for those things. But, but you, you all recognize, if you're, if you're wise at all, if you're introspective at all, you all recognize how many decisions you didn't make in this life. 
you all recognize how much has just been given to you. You you may call it luck to say how lucky that uh, we as as Christians we would more more rightly say how kind God's providence has been to us. There is this impulse in you to be grateful. It's why we have a day like Thanksgiving. It's because there's something in you that recognizes behind all of this something is doing this. Something is guiding this. Something is in control of this. God is at the beginning. God is at the foundation of everything. And through everything that He has made, He is displaying His goodness, power, and glory. So for example, in the universe, in God's creation of the universe, this immeasurable, ever-expanding universe. I, you know, if, you, if you stop and think about space, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I did grow up in Huntsville, Alabama. If you stop, a, if you stop and think about space, it is mind-blowing. To travel, to travel one light year, Okay, you have your light year, right? What does that mean? What is that, like 10 miles or something? No. To travel one light year, you have to travel to the sun and back 32,000 times, okay? You have to go all the way to the sun and back 32,000 times to just go one light year. Scientists estimate that this ever-expanding, immeasurable universe, and this is the science, they don't know. I mean, when you're getting, when you're talking about what I'm about to say, they just, you just, you don't know. Science estimate that it's 93 trillion light years in diameter. Now they can't see the, again, you're just, they're just guessing. They're a little more than guessing, but there's a lot of unknowns in that 93 trillion. But 93 trillion light years across. You've got to go 32,000 times between here and the sun to just get one light year. What is that? Well, you know what that is? It's, it's an overflow of the power immeasurable nature of God. And God, by His Word, spoke in this universe into existence to display Himself. That should do nothing but give you fear and awe of the power of our Creator. But it's not just the, it's not just, you know, the size of things, it's just the beauty of things, the order of things. You ever, ever uh, see something that's so beautiful that you cannot stop looking at it. There's this road out of Jackson, Wyoming. I think it's like Highway 191. And I say it's a very dangerous road. And it's not dangerous because it's curvy or because there's a lot of traffic. It's dangerous because the Tetons are over to the left and the Snake River, and it's so beautiful that you can't focus on the road. You're just kind of looking and hoping, you know? But that's the appropriate way to drive on that road because it's so beautiful. It's mesmerizingly beautiful. And all of that's just an overflow of the immeasurable beauty that God has. But again, God is more than just the material things that he's creating. And this is something that we believe. We believe in the immaterial things that God has made too. If some of y'all have heard of uh, Rick and Dick Hoyt, they're a racing team and they've done a lot of triathlons, a lot of marathons. Some of you may have heard of that. The thing that makes them special is Rick Hoyt has a very severe case of cerebral palsy. And so his father, Dick, literally either pushes him or he sits on this bike that they have specially made or he pulls him in a boat while he swims and they've competed in all these triathlons, all these marathons. Just a fascinating, amazing 
story. And if you, if you watch a video about it, you're always moved. Now, why are you moved? Why are you moved? You're moved because you see in it intense love, intense, sacrificial, persevering, deep love from a father to a son. Now listen, in a strictly material world, in a strictly material world, even allowing people that are severely handicapped like this to live is of no functional value. In a strictly material world, that makes no sense. Certainly not to go to all the lengths of competing in these races for the joy of this person. In a strictly material world, this makes no sense. It has no intrinsic value. But why do we look at this and say it is right, it is good? You know why? It's because love is an overflow from the essence of God. And when we see love expressed from husband to wife or for between friends or between a father and a child, there is something in us that says, ah, this is right, this is good, because it is right, because it is good, because it is a reflection of God who is love, who is right, who is all good. He is the beginning ontologically. He's the beginning chronologically. He's the beginning cosmologically. Everything that exists, material or immaterial, exists because he has ordained and designed it to exist. And listen to this. By a word, by a word of his power, all of it could disappear. It is all dependent on him. That 93 trillion light year universe, it is all fragile, resting on the supreme authority that God has. He is at the beginning, cosmologically. But finally, He's at the beginning teleologically. And you're like, what does that mean? It means this. You know and I know that you were designed for some purpose. You were designed for some end. You're supposed to do something. You're supposed to be something with your life. There, there is a great purpose that you and I have. Again, back to our little family catechism one of the questions, you know, the second question actually, John Kellis knows this one really good. What is the great purpose of man? The great purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is God's great purpose for us. You know, as I said before, our, our first inclination, our first thought is wrong. It's, it's our first thought is our own consciousness and because of that, we believe that we're at the center of the universe. The problem is that we're not at the center of the universe. And that's why we're so antsy. <laughs> and that's why we don't have peace. And that's why people are distracted all the time because they are living for a broken purpose. Now, you've heard me say before, I don't think it was always this way. In the beginning, before sin, I, I think that we weren't choosing lesser purposes we weren't choosing smaller purposes over the great purpose for which we were designed. We weren't choosing our own insignificant purposes over the great person. No, I believe in the beginning, Adam and Eve, their hearts were in tune with God. They, they, their first thought wasn't themselves. Their first thought was actually God and His glory. Their first thought was to enjoy God. And I've said before, the reason I believe this is that Adam had no idea that he was naked before sin. You have to be pretty 
unself-aware to not realize that you're not wearing clothes. His first thought wasn't himself. His first thought was God and his glory. That was Adam's inclination. And the tragedy of sin is now so many of our purposes are small and short and ultimately pretty meaningless. So how do we get back? How how do we get back to the place where our great purpose is the great purpose? I can't just explain this to you, right? I can explain it to you and you may say, well, I'm going to try to get back in. How do you get back in? How do you get your heart lined up with God's great purpose? How, How do you quit thinking that you are the center of the universe? It's not like you're trying to do that. And the simple answer is this. It's what it's really the answer of the Christian life. It's repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance is turning away from all illusions. Matt gave us this great Brennan Manning quote last week. He said, define yourself, Brennan Manning said, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. Repentance is turning away from all of the illusions. Repentance is seeing the illusions of this life for what they are and turning away from them and remembering God. It's remembering that God is in the beginning. He is before all things. He is before whatever smaller thing you are trusting in. Repentance is remembering that your job and your career only makes you important for a very small subculture of people. Repentance is remembering that no one, not even your family, will remember who you are in 200 years. Repentance is remembering that money does you very little good when diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Repentance is remembering that your family and friends can do nothing for you after you die. Repentance is remembering that sin ultimately never satisfies. Repentance is remembering that you have nothing to say before a completely holy God who knows every one of your actions, thoughts, and intentions. That's repentance. It's having your eyes open. It's waking up. But repentance is incomplete without faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance is turning away, but faith is turning too. And without a strong faith, without a saving faith, you you always end up turning back into the things that you should be repenting of. So, what does it mean to have faith? Well, it's turning to the only thing that can satisfy you. It's ultimately turning to God. This is who you were designed to point to Brother Lawrence, a very wise man who loved the Lord deeply, said this, Let us think often that our only business in this life is to please God. Perhaps all beside this is folly and vanity. I was texting with my uh, PhD supervisor this week. Uh, I was trying to remember a quote. And he couldn't remember it, which I was surprised at. And I couldn't remember it either. But my PhD supervisor, he's a true historian. I mean, he knows more about the 18th century than he knows about like the 21st century. 
He had no idea it was rivalry weekend. But if you said, like, what happened this weekend in 1745, he'd be like, oh, of course. You know, this, this, and this. But a true brilliant mind. We were talking about this, and he couldn't remember the quote, but he said, but the idea you're talking about here, Jason, is the, the idea of ravishing. Being ravished by the love of God. In the, the 18th century, ravish is not really a word we use anymore. But the 18th century idea of, of the word ravish is to be carried away, to be taken over and carried away. And to be filled with intense delight. Two ideas. It's an interesting word. To be taken over and carried away and to be filled with intense delight. This, this, is, this is faith. It's to be taken over and carried away by the knowledge of God. By the knowledge that the Almighty, creator of all things, the beginning of all things, loves you and pursues you and wants covenant relationship with you. And to by that be filled with intense delight. To be taken over and carried away to repentance, turning away from lesser things, from all illusions, and turning to the love and kindness and communion with a God and being filled with intense delight. So how do you do that? How do we live a life of repentance and faith? And, and I'll close with these two ideas. First is to think about the idea of occasion. The idea of occasion. You can be reminded of the realities of the world anywhere at any time doing anything. But there are certain occasions that give you a better chance to be reminded of the realities of this world. It's why a, a worship service is a good thing to do, to pause weekly and worship the Lord. It reminds you of the reality of this world. It reminds you that you are not at the beginning of all things. We desire, as we design these services, that this would be a transcendent moment. It wouldn't be a casual, street-level exchange of some laughs and a good time. No, but there would be a transcendence here, that our eyes would be opened up even just a little bit to see the glory of God. And that that would ravish us. That would lead us away from lesser things and toward ultimate things. This is why you, we, we encourage you to have a devotional time, to be reading your Bibles. This is why we encourage parents to be praying with your family. It, it's not that these spiritual disciplines in and of themselves are what is valuable. They just provide the occasion for you to experience what is truly valuable. So I hope that your life is filled with rhythm that is full of occasion for you to experience the Lord. Again, please don't hear me wrong. God can meet you anywhere at any time, but the chances improve that He will meet you when you pursue Him. And then the second thing is, how does this happen? It's by focusing on the source of repentance and faith, which is Jesus Himself. Matt said earlier, this wonder that I am both worthy Worthy and, and, and I am not worthy. All at the same time. That's what Jesus can do to us. You see, in the beginning, God did create the heavens and the earth. And it was perfect. It was a beautiful overflow of Himself. But the problem with this creation is that God put us in charge. And very quickly, rather from turning this world and all of its order back toward God as a display of His glory, we turned it in on ourselves. We began to become intrigued with the creature and not the creator. We quickly turned our passion and desires 
to us and not to God. And the order of God was, was ruined by us. And sin and pain and separation from God has been spreading throughout the world, throughout the created order, through ever since. But this is the, the wonder of Christmas. This is the wonder of Christ, that God has sent a reorderer. God has sent one who has not turned in on himself, but came seeking the glory of his Father, seeking the salvation of his church. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And through his death and resurrection, we can be remade, renewed. So how do you get back in? How do you remember that God created you to please him? What do you put your faith in? Put your faith in this reorderer this rescuer, this Jesus, your protector, who leads you into repentance, who leads you into deeper faith, who leads you into life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this foundation. You are the beginning of all things. Lord, may we recognize that today. And you have given us, Lord, a new beginning in Jesus a reorder, one that reorients our rebellious hearts toward your love. Lord, I pray that we would be taken over and filled with delight today. We think about how you have pursued us, Christ. Lord, do this work in your church and for your glory, I pray. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.